Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday, and if it's a Tuesday, you know that Joe Biden is out there saying something crazy. Except what he just said today to Democrat donors who are backing his re-election bid, as fraught as that is, he said something that is bizarre on steroids. I'll share that with you in just a moment. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on a Tuesday. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And yeah, we are going to talk about the formal vote on a Biden impeachment inquiry that the U.S. Congress will take next week. We don't know which day this week yet, or I don't know which day this uh, the next week, but uh, they're going to take the vote. And it appears that the House Speaker, Mike Johnson, believes that there are enough votes to go forward with an impeachment investigation or inquiry, if you want to use the fancy terminology. They're going to go ahead with an impeachment investigation. And then Joe Biden comes out and says something that is just downright crazy. And I know with Joe Biden, he sets the bar for crazy very, very high. But get this. Well, 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. You can also send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find the question every single day at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. And today's question goes this way. Should the Congress let the FBI keep its power to spy on Americans? And I would say no. That power runs out at the end of this calendar year unless the Congress renews it. And at least 50 lawmakers, including both Republicans and Democrats, have said, you know what, the FBI should not keep that power. They were supposed to use it to keep the country safe, to keep an eye on foreign nationals. Now, occasionally, you'd have a foreign national talking to an American citizen. And so the surveillance would pick up both of them. But the FBI has been so weaponized, so politicized, they act as a part of the Democrat Party. I would not give them that power anymore. And if you say, but you're going to put America at risk. When the FBI itself puts America at risk by its political shenanigans, by its involvement in all the things that have happened over about the last decade or so, with spying on a presidential campaign, trying to change the outcome of an election, I don't want to give that bunch any more authority than they already have. But let me tell you what Joe Biden said just today. And I'll cite the reporting of the New York Post. Joe Biden was speaking at a political fundraiser today, earlier today. And here's what he said. I'll give you his actual quote. If Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running, but we cannot let him win. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think this means. Because it is usually tough to figure out what the heck Joe Biden is all about. But he told the fundraiser he likely would have retired after a single term in office if President Donald Trump was not running in next year's election. And I'll tell you what I think is going on and why he's changing this. Because he's trying to sell himself to the American public to elect him for another term when he hasn't been competent in his current term in office. 
But I think what's going on is that Joe Biden has tried to sell America that Bidenomics is working out great, that prices are coming down, that inflation has been cured, and that everything is rosy. And everybody outside of Joe Biden's Oval Office knows that's not true. His own people know it's not true. And in fact, other Democrats are now dodging away from the whole idea of Bidenomics. They don't want to run on the president's economic record because it's a pile of garbage right now. So what is Joe Biden going to sell Americans on now? What he's going to do is say, I'm doing you a favor. I'm running for another term of office because I'm going to prevent that evil tweeting orange man from getting into the White House. The only problem with that theory is that Joe Biden isn't even certain of getting his own party's nomination, while Donald Trump is certain, almost virtually certain, that he will get the nomination. The support for Donald Trump is close to 60% in the Republican Party. So he gets the nomination. What happens then in the contest, Donald Trump versus whoever the Democrats put up? Well, when two-thirds of Democrats say, we don't really want Joe Biden as the candidate in 2024, well, then what are you going to do then? Who are you going to throw in? Gavin Newsom? I don't think so. But what Joe Biden may try to do now is since Bidenomics was not selling to voters very well at all, what he's saying is, put me in because I can keep Donald Trump from getting into office. I don't actually think he can make that claim. I don't think he can beat Trump in the general election, unless the Democrats do a whole lot more cheating than they did in the year 2020. But to come out and tell his donors, I wouldn't be running if it weren't for Donald Trump running. Biden is already the oldest ever president in American history. If he actually made it through a second term, I'm not even sure he's going to finish this term. He would be 86 years old if he finished a second term, and that would be in January of 2029. And, of course, we've told you all the times that Joe Biden comes out and says bizarre things, God save the queen or whatever. Almost every day there's a new soundbite of this guy sounding like he he doesn't know what's going on, like his brain is completely confused. And polls, two out of three voters are concerned about Joe Biden's mental acuity. They're worried that his brain ain't working right now. And the real clear politics average of national polls, according to the Post, shows Donald Trump with 46.7% support and Joe Biden two full percentage points behind him. And that's a kinder poll result by averaging all the national polls to say Donald Trump is leading Joe Biden by two full percentage points in the average of all the polls. And then Joe Biden comes out and says, yeah, probably wouldn't even be running if Donald Trump wasn't running. So if his sole purpose is to deny Donald Trump another term in office, that makes the result, that makes the uh, the decision about 2024 very, very easy. Do you remember what things were like under Donald Trump? We had low unemployment. We had economic prosperity. We had a well-run country. We had adversaries on the globe who respected us. And we did great things for our friends. Trump brought about all those new agreements in the Middle East. Joe Biden has done nothing but either flub up the exit from Afghanistan, leaving people dead, including service members, um, dropping a predator drone missile on top of a family and saying, oops, we, we thought we were getting the bad guys who set off the bomb that killed 13 service members. No, you actually just killed a family of 10. So you had all that going on, 
are now economically involved in a war in Ukraine that's less popular day by day. And we may end up in, at war between uh, with communist China over Taiwan. And you got Joe Biden putting $6 billion in the hands of the mad mullahs of Tehran, which they hand over to the Hamas terrorists so they can do a slaughter on the 7th of October. And you want four more years of that? Instead of four more years of economic prosperity and America first under Donald Trump, who in the world would take that choice? And by the way, next week, Joe Biden is going to watch the United States House of Representatives vote to start a formal impeachment inquiry of the president of the United States. And I think at this point, even Joe Biden knows they've got the goods on him. Coming up in just a moment, Democrats want to flood our armories with illegal aliens as recruitment because they've hit an all-time low. I'm going to tell you why that's a bad idea. We'll talk to our friend Frank Gaffney. I'll get to your calls. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. This musical message to anyone who wants to indoctrinate our school children. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you first at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that on X or Twitter at Lars Larson Show and on our website at LarsLarson.com. Frank Gaffney joins me now, founder of the Center for Security Policy and most importantly, author of the number one best-selling book on Amazon in its category, The Indictment, Prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and Friends for Crimes Against America, China, and the World. Frank, welcome back to the program, and tell me what we should make of the fact that Democrat Senator Dick Durbin is saying maybe we should have illegal aliens, undocumented people, who would serve in our U.S. military if we're short on recruiting. Well, Lars, thank you for having me. This is a very troubling development, but I have to say not entirely unexpected. Uh, the uh, Biden team has been working, I believe, uh, for its entire time in office. And, and frankly, I consider it to be the Obama-Biden Obama 3.0 administration. So this has been going on for quite some time. Uh, to remake every institution of our government, including the military, and remake it along lines that are, as you know, Obama said on the eve of his election the first time, um, fundamentally transforming the country. And in the case of the U.S. military, what that translates into, I think, is uh, turning it into something that has been widely described as uh, woke, but I believe that's uh, a euphemism that is really misleading. Um, it's a term, actually, that, that goes back to Mao, if you can believe it, but it uh, it doesn't, in English, um, translate as well into what's really going on, and it's a kind of cultural Marxism. And when you look at you know the agenda, whether it's uh, uh, the critical race theory, the uh, 
diversity, equity, inclusion, the uh, efforts to, you know, adopt the LGBTQ agenda, gender, you know, um, the transformations and the like. Uh, and I know, by the way, that climate change is the greatest threat we face. All of these things are, you know, at odds with um, what is the mission of the United States military, which is to fight the nation's wars and to promote those who um, fight them effectively on the basis of merit not on skin color or, or some other, you know, uh, characteristic that uh, they have no control over. And the process of uh, doing this to the armed forces uh, now relentlessly, the, the, the indoctrination, yes, the brainwashing, yes, the purges, yes, the vaccine jabs that, uh, you know, drove people out, uh, have had twofold and predictable effects. One, um, good people are leaving. And secondly, uh, the kind of good people that you want to recruit are not volunteering. So there is a huge and yawning uh, shortfall in the recruitment uh, numbers that uh, we have to have for an all-volunteer force. And very simply, um, Dick Durbin has come up with a scheme as to how we can fill the gap. And, And an excuse, I mean, it has multiple layers to it. But if you say, let's let illegal aliens who've come into our country illegally and broken the law, let's let's offer them a slot in the military. And if they serve a term, then we'll grant them citizenship. It's as though they found another venue to to try to make it look right to take people who break our laws, enter our country illegally and say, but we'll give you uh, an opportunity at citizenship or at least permanent residency in the United States if you'll serve a term in the military which doesn't sound like a great idea to me at all. I haven't served in the military, but we have an all-volunteer force, and you're going to bring in people who, with one exception, the group of fighting-age Chinese communists who've been coming in for some reason that you point out, but the rest of them, do they even have language, the language skills, the ability to read, write, and do simple math uh, that, that we would expect of any recruit who's going into the military? Because to train people, they have to be able to read. They have to be able to write. And they have to be able to do a little bit of simple math. Are most of the illegal aliens capable of that? Because I don't get the impression that they have much education. Well, there are a couple of problems here, Lars, and you've put your finger on one of them, of course. Um, there, there's a program that's been in place in the military for some time, which is designed to um, give people who are uh, not U.S. citizens, but who are here legally, and wish to become citizens, an opportunity to fast-track citizenship on the basis of, you know, good military service. Um, What has only recently, I think, been uh, modified is the idea that if you're here illegally, you can also get access to that kind of uh, fast-track treatment. Um, When Durbin spoke about this on the floor of the Senate yesterday, he talked about... um, you know, what we're looking for are, you know, healthy, fit, um, uh, young people seeking to uh, serve this country and put their lives on the line if necessary uh, in order to, you know, qualify for this kind of uh, uh, special uh, treatment and, and opportunity. The difficulty, in addition to the issue that you've mentioned, which is do they just have the basic you know, skills to be trained and, and yeah, perform that, as that's we all want. I'm saying. You have this whole problem of people who happen to be here in large numbers who are unaccompanied, yes fit, 
military-age men from, in some cases, uh, communist China, in other cases, uh, a lot of other places that are hostile to us. Yep. And the idea of putting those folks into the United States military um, not only conjures up the images, of course, of in the past uh, so-called green on blue attacks on our armed forces, both in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, of course, but also in uh, Fort Hood, as we've talked about many years ago. But on top of that, you've got this other situation um, uh, where you have, by some counts, tens of thousands of Chinese special forces elements who have seemingly been insinuated to this country, and they may well speak English, my friend. They may be they the may best trained have a lot of other They skills. may be capable of reading yeah. or writing English and speaking English, oh, yeah. and they might look like great recruits. But yeah. I guess I have a fundamental problem with saying, let's get people who've broken one of our most important rules, and that is you can't come into our country unless we invite you to come into our country. You broke that rule, but now we're going to give you a spot in the U.S. military? That's the plan. That's the What's plan. Uh, and, and I think that the effect of it could be devastating, of course, uh, to the military on the one hand and, of course, to the nation on the other. And this is the thing that I, I think is just not being properly addressed, understood, uh, or discussed about Joe Biden's wrecking operation, whether it's at the border, whether it's also uh, now on the U.S. military and the other kinds of transformations that he's engaged in. But the, the real danger here is we're going to reap the whirlwind, I'm afraid. Uh, well, imagine this, Frank. You know, you remember all the who- not welcome. Do you remember all the excitement about the Chinese spy balloon, which the Biden administration claimed was not a spy balloon until they said, well, yeah, it turns out it was a spy balloon, but they didn't get the information. Oh, now it turns out they were sending back the information real time. Can you imagine what a boon it would be to the Chinese military and the Chinese government if they were able to get people into our U.S. military in any kind of position where they could feed information back? That'd be a great spy position, wouldn't it? Well, it would. And unfortunately, there are a lot of uh, other folks, it's turning out, who are in places inside the United States government who uh, are similarly, it seems, working for the other team. Uh, There's a gal who's the uh, chief of staff to the assistant secretary of defense for um, special operations and low intensity conflict who has been tied to Iran, for heaven's sake. So I I think the, the counterintelligence responsibilities of the FBI have broken down completely, Lars, and this is just another example of uh, indifference to the most fundamental nature of security. We can't sustain this, I don't think, and we need to fix it right quick. Absolutely right. That's Frank Gaffney. Frank is the founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C. His number one book on Amazon, The Indictment, Prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and Friends for Crimes Against America, China, and the World. We'll get to your phone calls in a moment. You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Who 
always ask Lars if he wants to run for public office, like president. Do you know how much power I'd have to give up to be president? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your calls. And in fact, I want to take this call from Russ because in talking to Frank Gaffney a moment ago about the fact that uh, you've got Dick Durbin, Democrat senator from Illinois, who is saying, why don't we take some of these illegal aliens that Joe Biden has invited to invade our country, people who've broken the laws of our nation and have come here illegally, and why don't we put them in the U.S. military and say if they serve a certain term in the military that we will grant them either resident status or the opportunity to become citizens. I think that's a lunatic idea, but it's coming from Dick Durbin, so what would you expect? But Russ had something else on his mind. Russ, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hi. Yeah, I served 11 years in the military, Thank and you. I came in during the uh, Vietnam, uh, right at the tail end of Vietnam. They had the draft. Now, why can't they bring back the draft since the military is having such a hard time recruiting people um, into the service? I mean, when I re-enlisted, I got bonuses that yep. were... No, and those, they're offered now, too. There are huge bonuses being offered by the military for recruitment. Yeah. But the thing I'd ask you, Russ, you weren't drafted into the military, or were you? I was called up to be drafted, but so I you turned knew- around and volunteered. And when I volunteered, I could pick my own MOS that I wanted to go into. I'm curious, did they actually give you the MOS you picked? Because I've heard all kinds yes. of stories over the years of people who say, yeah, they told me I could have my pick, and whatever they picked, they usually got something else. Well, you didn't. Ha- they didn't have a very good recruiter, because you go into a recruiter and you tell them what you're interested in. But I was interested in um, engineering, uh, construction engineer mechanics. Right. And so I... I talked to the recruiter about it, and he said, okay, we'll send you to boot camp, we'll send you to AIT for construction engineer uh, deal, and they guaranteed in writing that I would get uh, training in the, I was a 52 Bravo um, engineer, and it was all in writing, and if you did not get that um, in writing, then they can put you in and anything they want to put you in. Yeah. You've got to talk to the recruiter, and they would give you that, that MOS. If you're drafted, you're basically... You're, you're whatever they want you to be. So let me ask you this, though, Russ. Do you think we have a better military when every man and woman in the military knows that every single person, the person to their right, the person to their left, and the person who's got their six... They're all there because they chose to be there, or do we be better off with a military made up, at least in part, of people who are forced to be there by being drafted? I don't think that sounds like a great way to run the operation, does it? Well, we had people who were drafted, and after they'd gone through BASIC and AIT, they kind of had a different idea. Yeah, and some uh, yeah, of them were, probably were, liked it, but Russ, that doesn't address this question. This question is, if we have a military and everybody in the military is there, uh, they may have rough times uh, you know, during their military service, but they're there because they chose to be there. 
Would we improve the military by conscripting some people and saying, you have no choice, you are going in the military against your will? I don't know if you'd improve anything by forcing people into the military. I think you would degrade the military by doing that, is my opinion. Because, Russ... Anything you're forced to do, you might actually turn out to like something you were forced to do. Or you might turn out not to like it. But I think the odds are much better of you uh, appreciating your military service and saying, this is what I chose to do because you chose to do it. And if you tell people, no, no, you don't have any choice, we're going to make you be in the military, I don't think that's a positive. So bringing back the draft does not seem like a great option, especially since we're in peacetime as well. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And our Twitter poll today, uh, should Congress let the FBI keep its power to spy on Americans? I'd say no to that. The U.S. Congress is deciding right now if the FBI does not have its power to spy on both foreign nationals and Americans renewed by the end of the year, then they lose it altogether. Let's go to Alabama and talk to Chris. Hey, Chris. I'm told you're a naysayer, but I got the impression you might agree with me. What's on your mind, sir? It's a bit of both, Lars. Thanks for having okay. us on the show. Go for it. Um, I, I am 100% in agreement with you on illegal immigration. I, I don't agree with that in any way, shape, or form. I understand your concerns with all of the uh, folks that are coming in. I just want to simply uh, pinpoint the only place that I'm a naysayer would be on illegals possibly serving in the military to earn citizenship. The example that I have, I got 29 years in the Army. Uh, I have a deployment to Iraq. I served in Iraq with uh, a young man who was Mexican, whose parents brought him here illegally when he was a child. So he's a dreamer. And as he, One of the Dream Act, uh, or Dream, it wasn't an act. It was a piece of paper signed by Obama, but it was the Dream Program, right? I believe that actually was yeah. what it was under. But where I, where this is a bit of a double-edged sword for me is, you know, I don't I don't want spies in the military. That's for sure. But for people like that, and I don't know how that you would vet that. Uh, he was one of the best soldiers I knew. He was happy to be there. He wanted to be an American. He wanted to serve his country. And he was my daddy's friend. No, oh, okay. Who was that, Chris? That's my daughter. She's in the oh. car with me. Sorry about that. How old is she? Nine. Nine. You know what? Co- compliment her because uh, because it's tough for me to slip in uh, those little co- comments in between, and she did it just perfectly. So, yeah, give her my best. Thank you. Well, here's the thing I'm concerned about, Chris. Number one, if you ta- just take the run-of-the-mill illegal alien, these uh, millions that Joe Biden has invited in, what do you suppose the average level of education is for those people who are seeking to come into America illegally? Uh, probably likely low. I'm not sure if they would. But, you know, if you're going to do this program, it would have to be kind of like letting the folks in the country in the first place. You would have to vet them. You'd have to know who they are. You'd have to have background. They would have to pass the ASVAB if your listeners don't know what that is. That's a great set of tests they ought to use in every school, <laughs> frankly. But uh, I would I would highly agree with that. Uh, and and I, I this individual read, write, spoke English and went to school here. So 
It, it's just that he was illegal because he had been brought here by his parents. And and the concern the concern I've got though, Chris, is number one, you take all the illegals who wouldn't qualify. If you can't speak English reasonably well, read and write and do a little bit of math. In other words, what you'd have if you had a high school diploma or a GED. How do you train people who are starting at a basis where they're b- below zero? I mean, most I, I, I haven't checked in a while, but most of the military services will not take you without a GED or a high school diploma. And why? Why wouldn't you take a ninth grade dropout? Because you want them to have a certain basic level of skills so that the, so that you can quickly train them, you know, both at, uh, you know, both at uh, at boot camp and then later at their MOS school. But if you start taking just any illegal alien, the second concern I've got, which Frank Gaffney brought up, we're seeing this stunning number of Chinese nationals who appear to be fighting age males not accompanied by their families who say, I'm a refugee or I'm an asylum seeker. You say, what are you seeking asylum from that you ran from your home country without your family, without your kids, and now you show up here uh, and you appear to be fighting age males? I kind of suspect where that's going as well. Chris, thanks for the call from Alabama, and thanks to that young lady with her great comment. But first, I want to talk to Dr. Wayne Weingarten, who is the senior fellow and director at the Center for Medical Economics and Innovation at Pacific Research. Um, Dr. Weingarten, let me set it up this way and you take it where you want to go and tell me if I'm wrong. The pandemic is long behind us. So why in the world is President Biden continuing to shovel out COVID relief, so-called, somehow as a justification for shoveling out billions and billions of dollars to local governments around America? Yeah, well, there, there's an old saying that said there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. <laughs> yep. And that's really that, that that's what we're dealing with here, that the, the, the money was put out there. It, it was an incredible amount of money to spend. They were spending two trillion dollars and they had all these buckets to spend it with. And about 350 billion was supposed to help the states. Now, it turns out the states didn't need the help. The revenue for the states actually held up. But there was still $350 billion to spend. And the way Washington, D.C. works is you got if the money's been allocated to you, you're going to spend it. And so they couldn't spend it fast enough. And so what's just happened is basically there's a, almost $100 billion of taxpayers' money that really should be going back, uh, not spent, right? And that would be actually about yep. a 10% reduction in our deficit. But the administration say, no, no, we're going to change the rules, which is essentially what they're doing, so that they can get this money out the door, so they can spend it. And it's been wasted. Well, and by the way, you've listed out some of the ways it's been wasted, I think. Things like golf courses and lottery prizes? Yeah, I, I can't take credit for that great research. It was it was done by this group, uh, the Economic Policy Innovation Center. But they, they, they did a fantastic work. And, yeah. You're exactly right. It's it's been uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on golf courts and uh, golf carts and irrigation at golf courses. Uh, you, you have money being spent on things like uh, uh, stadiums, uh, uh, different types of centers. I mean, things that have absolutely nothing to do with recovery from COVID, which again, like you said, long, long time ago. But the money's out there. And, and they want to spend it, so they're going to come up with a reason to spend it. 
Well, and by the way, uh, it, the, the rules apparently say that if the states don't legally obligate the money, meaning contract out and say this money is spent uh, by the end of next year, then they have to, I guess, send it back to Washington, D.C. And I guess that's about that, that doesn't seem like it has a high likelihood that states that have been handed a pile of cash and who are told figure out how to spend it or send it back. They're going to figure out how to spend it. Well, and, but the funny thing is they weren't figuring it out. And that's why when the, the administration, when they came in right now, they're giving them more time to spend it because they couldn't figure out how to spend it. I mean, it, it's, it's only $100 billion, right? So um, <laughs> what, what's the problem? But they couldn't figure out how to spend it fast enough. So they had to extend the deadline so they can come up with ways to spend it. Unbelievable. And what about this? We're sending millions of dollars in COVID relief funds to a group that's been harboring the Hamas terrorists. Tell me about that. Well, that's just uh, in a lot of these different kind of where the funds are going. They're going to different places and being spent and being spent poorly. And the oversight of the funds are are not there. So they're being spent on priorities uh, that don't make sense, on waste, on things that are against our interests. I mean, all of these things are creeping in because uh, there's no oversight because we're spending this money so quickly. So, yes, some some of the money is being spent on horrific things like that. And that's um, that that's incredibly troubling. And some of it's just wasted. Right. I mean, some of the money was spent on lottery prizes. So they were trying to incentivize people to to get vaccinated. And so you create a lottery to, to send people on on a vacation. Well, th- th- that's what this money has been uh, sent, uh, spent on. And what's really troubling is when you look at we have a two trillion dollar deficit and it, it's trillions of dollars over the next several years. I mean, we are we're at a fiscal crisis that we need to respond to. And while, you know, 100 billion dollars in D.C. isn't real money. It's actually about 10 percent of our upcoming deficit. Yeah, it's unbelievable unbelievable how they're how they're wasting our money. Dr. Weingarten, thank you very much. That's Wayne Weingarten, the director of the Center for Medical Economics and Innovation at Pacific Research. To your calls now, let's go to Vanessa first. Hey, Vanessa, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, a couple of things on that. The illegals being into the military. Dick Durbin's um, idea. I joined yeah. up way back. I'm sorry, say again? I, I said Dick Durbin's crazy idea. So you were in the military? Oh, yeah. And I Thank served you. with uh, my best friend was somebody who had come into the, the country uh, not exactly legally and got his citizenship after the first tour. And I was proud to stand next to him when he when he swore in. Um, but the problem I've seen now, um, I got out of the military, came back. Puerto Rico has a very high percentage of very low English-speaking soldiers in the National Guard to the point where their ASVAB test has a Spanish option, and the recruiters, I know this because I talked to them, the recruiters will tell them, take the ASVAB test, but don't do well on it, and tell them that you want to take the Spanish one. Because if they're bilingual, they will actually score higher on the Spanish version because it's written at a lower grade average. It's oh. written at like a ninth grade reading level versus the English ASVAB is written at a 12th. And so you have these soldiers come in who don't have a great proficiency in English. Well, all of the field manuals, tech manuals, the FMs, TMs that yep. the military has, those are all in English. Yep. All of the safety signs and everything are in English. And 
when we ran into units over in the Middle East that had a high percentage of soldiers that had limited English, they were like, oh, well, they're NCOs, you know, they're, they, they can translate for them and like that. Well, we were out in an enemy threat zone, and the NCO that was the translator basically for his gunner, his gunner spoke so little English, was injured. And the gunner got on the radio and was trying to call for help, but couldn't speak enough English to communicate that to the fast mover that was coming in. Because especially when they're stressed, their default is to go to the thing that is most common. So the limited English that that soldier knew didn't help him at all. No, and, and that's, that's, the, that's the concern I've got, soldiers. is if you've got the average illegal alien who comes across, who, who may not even have high school, may not speak English well, may not read or write English well, they're not going to make a great recruit to go into the military that needs to, you know, send you to boot and for 13 weeks or so, and then send you off to MOS school typically for six weeks. And you're supposed to come out of that trained, but I assume in your MOS school, you've got to read the manuals. You got to be able to read the assignments. You got to be able to do the work or what are they going to have you do? And they don't have that many low skilled jobs in the military anymore. Vanessa, thanks very much. I appreciate your call and I appreciate your service in uniform. Glad to get your calls to it. 866. Hey, Lars. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. Uh, tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson show. And if you get a chance, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You're listening to the Lars Larson show. The Lars Larson show. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I want to get to your phone calls, but let me know, let me let you know about some of the developments that have come down in just the last few hours. Number one, there will be a vote on one of the days of next week uh, on whether or not to proceed with an impeachment inquiry into Joseph Biden. Now, I think the Republicans have taken far too long to get to this point, but they benefit now from having a pile of evidence of the wrongdoing of the Biden crime family and the ties between millions in Chinese communist money flowing into Hunter Biden's firm and then some of it flowing off to the big guy, Joe Biden. So they have that going for them. And I, I guess God help any Republican who votes no on this impeachment inquiry. Uh, they should be ashamed of themselves. And frankly, there ought to be some Democrats who are honest enough to say Joe Biden has been involved in things that are that do constitute high crimes and misdemeanors. So that's on the agenda. Um, number two, we've got Joe Biden himself today saying he wouldn't even be running. He likely would not be running for reelection if Donald Trump was not running. So in other words, the reason to vote for Joe Biden is because you don't like Donald Trump. Yeah, that sounds like quite a campaign slogan. It might be a little bit better than Bidenomics, but I don't think so either. And then the administration has come out with new emissions rules that will probably make the economy demonstrably worse. We'll get to that. 
And then you have crazy Dick Durbin, U.S. Senator from the great state of Illinois, who has proposed the idea, believe it or not, of recruiting illegal aliens who've come into America, some of the millions that Joe Biden invited to cross our border in the last less than three years. And now Dick Durbin says, well, if we've got a recruiting crisis in the U.S. military and we can't attract enough Americans with the signing bonuses and the training and the GI Bill and everything else that goes along with serving our country for a few years in uniform, Dick Durbin says, fill the ranks with illegal aliens. It's an absolutely horrendous idea. And later on this hour, have teachers unions paid Southern lawmakers to keep school choice out of the South and away from the parents who might use it to get a better education for their kids? We're going to talk about that. Would you call a $67 million homeless program in Los Angeles a success if it only managed to house 255 individuals out of the city's estimated 46,000 homeless people? Are FDA-approved products delivering on their promise, or are they just some placebos? And I want you to take just a moment to cast a vote in our Twitter poll. We put up a brand-new question each and every day from the news of the day. And today the question is, should Congress let the FBI keep its current authority that allows it to spy on Americans. In some cases, Americans who are not even suspected of committing a crime. The FBI director, Christopher Wray, showed up in front of Congress saying, well, it'd be devastating if we lost those surveillance powers. And yet, the FBI has been weaponized. The FBI has been politicized. The FBI has been turned into a political weapon of the Democrat Party, and now they want to keep the authority to spy on Americans for no real good reason. I would say no to that. Take it away from them. And only when they can later justify it, justify it the way the Constitution lines out. You want a warrant to wiretap somebody? Go to a court. Show them probable cause. Otherwise, shut up. Today's Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined the group a long time ago, and you should too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. A shout-out to our friends in Corinth, Mississippi, where they listen to Great Talk Radio all day long on WXRZ. That's FM 94.3 in Corinth, and you can find my show there as well. To your calls now. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And naysayers always go first. John, you heard that crazy idea from Dick Durbin saying, let's fill the ranks of our military with illegal aliens. What do you make of that? Well, first off, Lars, thank you for taking my call. You um, I, I, think the, I, I think the idea is ludicrous. Um, if, across the board. I think that what we are doing now currently with um, undocumented individuals who um, meet our standards, um, that meet our standards for language, meet our standards for criminal conduct, um, I have no problem with that because I have, I have served side by side with those who, um, like your previous caller, um, met the standards and, and uh, served honorably. But if but not illegal aliens. People, no, no. Those no. people who are seeking are seeking 
some level of, of uh, legality here, uh, but not, not those that, the, the people that are, are flooding across the borders now. But right. One of the reasons why I, I, I called this evening is I think we're missing the point on the issue with um, the draft. I'm a member of a local draft board here in Idaho. And, you know, one of the, the things that we have been discussing is that, you know, yes, for almost 50 years now, a, an all-volunteer military has been, been what we have, achieved, have been working towards achieving and has done a great things for our nation. But we're not meeting those goals now. Um, even after lowering the standards about criminality and even after lowering the standards about drug use, we're still not meeting those, those, uh, those quotas in three of our four major uh, uniform services. So right. I think that we need to consider the possibility of a limited draft in order to, to prepare ourselves for what we think may occur. What better time for us to, to have a draft in place, a limited draft in place, during a time prior to uh, an armed conflict than after one has kicked off. I think that we, we, we should actually be considering it, and having a limited draft may lead us uh, back to people like a couple callers ago who will then go in and, and take advantage of those incentives and potentially in, uh, enlist John, having been John, the, when you talked about the co- possible coming conflict, we're not going to put boots on the ground in, in Ukraine. Agreed? No. Agreed. And the next possible, the most likely conflict is which one? China-Taiwan, right? I I would think possibly, but we we can't discount what's going on in in the South China Sea. We can't discount what's going on in in the Middle East as well. Um, Our forces and the enemy forces are are standing right next to one another, and it's going to take very little. I believe, to, uh, for, an, for a conflict to escalate. And it could very easily escalate beyond our control. Now, I, no, we're not going to put boots on the ground in Ukraine, but what if Putin does his thing and decides to, work, to go into one of our, uh, our NATO oh, countries? Oh, one of the NATO countries. I, Poss- possibly. Yeah. Although, John, I keep wondering, what do you say to the military, those who are in, those who volunteered, to put on the uniform, and God bless them, and you say to them, by the way, the guy or gal to your right or left may be somebody who doesn't want to be there, was forced to be there, and, and, and wants to be out as soon as they possibly can. What does that say to the people who are currently serving the military? They're going to be serving along with conscripts, and they don't even want to be here. That one doesn't sound like a good one for those in the military. I don't think it sounds like a good one for uh, our country either. John, thanks for what you do uh, on the draft board, and I appreciate your call. you got the Lawrence Larson Show. Solid advice from Senator John Kennedy. Look, if you hate cops just because of the cops, the next time you get in trouble, call a crackhead. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to get to your calls in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers, of course, go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. 
And as I introduce Dr. Henry Miller, a medical doctor, molecular biologist, he's now at the American Council on Science and Health, former founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Doc, welcome back. But I have to tell you, I may have a dog in the fight on this one because I'm a guy who talks for a living. So that means that when I get congested, it becomes tough to talk past that congestion. So I've I've used over-the-counter cold meds. I try to use them as little as possible. And actually, I don't think I've taken one now in a couple of weeks. But I try to clear up that congestion. Are you telling me that these FDA-approved over-the-counter drugs for colds and allergies might actually be nothing more than placebos? Uh, yeah. It, it, well, it depends on which product we're talking about, Lars. Dayquil, um, in my case, for the most part. The, so. the most popular um, drug that is in uh, a lot of products, including Dayquil, is called phenylephrine. And uh, it was, it's been around for a quarter of a century. The uh, criteria for approval and the tests that were used were pretty primitive. And uh, the modern tests... Uh, and trials indicate that it doesn't work, and it's in um, all sorts of things, um, Sudafed PE, uh, some versions of Mucinex, Dayquil, Tylenol Sinus, and so on. Uh, and uh, m- amazingly, um, in 2022, uh, there were something like 220 million bottles and, uh, and packages of this stuff sold. Wow. And, yet, and so people think that it works, but the studies show that it doesn't. And there are a couple of interesting explanations for that. Well, let me ask you first, because then when you and I first talked about this a couple of weeks ago, because the FDA has been making noises about getting basically saying we're not going to let people sell it anymore because we've decided it doesn't work. Doc, I can tell you this. There are mornings that I get up. I'm congested. You know, I may have a little bit of a cold. It may be allergies. It may be other things. I've never really had allergies. I take one Dayquil, not the dose of two, and within 15 minutes, I'm usually cleared up, and uh, and and then I can talk past it. If I talk past congestion, it it usually wears <laughs> wears on my vocal cords, and 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 uh, and it can it can lead to laryngitis. What am I experiencing then if the stuff doesn't actually work? Is that just purely a psychosomatic reaction uh, to taking the pill? Well, it could be one of two things. It could be uh, a psychosomatic, a psychogenic response or psychogenic, uh, called the, yeah. the placebo effect. <clears throat> so uh, if you think that it's going to work, uh, often it does. And um, it, interestingly, there's a kind of evil twin to the uh, placebo effect that not many people know about, and that's called the nocebo effect. And that's that um, you you can, from a sugar pill or something that's completely inert, you can get adverse reactions to it. You can get side effects. Yeah. To Uh, a sugar pill? from From a sugar pill. So we see that in clinical trials where the investigator has explained to the to the subjects uh, that uh, there there may be um, headaches or uh, muscle aches or fatigue or, or something uh, from it, depending on whether if you know if even from the from the real drug, but if they're in the placebo group, the the control group, uh, they have some of these. Uh, side effects or report some of these side effects as well. It's it's a very interesting phenomenon. So what do I do? I mean, I guess in some ways then, if people take the stuff and it does work, 
even if the effect is a placebo effect. I know you could say, well, Lars, just buy a bottle or a little container of Tic Tacs and pretend that it's it's DayQuil. I'm sure that that isn't likely to have the same uh, effect on my brain that taking the DayQuil does. So what happens when, and should the FDA say, we're just not going to let people sell this stuff anymore, even though it works, whether it works chemically or it works psychologically, if it works and they take it away, what are we supposed to do? Well, uh, there there is a, a companion drug, a similar drug uh, that contains uh, um, pseudo that does work. So I would recommend that people uh, take that instead, or uh, to to take up your previous suggestion, you could just get Tina to buy Tic Tac and give you the drug and say, uh, Lars. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's going to work. But I mean, are they literally talking about taking this stuff off the market? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And should it be? uh, Yeah, it should be because uh, phenylephrine does have real side effects: Uh, nausea, um, uh, rapid heartbeat, and so on. I've had none of that, so maybe it's. Maybe it's so it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It does do other things. And so we're just going to take it away and say, go use something else. Pseudoephedrine, which did they have to take pseudoephedrine off the market for or limited supply because of what methamphetamine cooks or or do you remember? Yeah, it, it's behind the counter. It's still available, but you have to ask for it. Uh, wow. And and it, they limit you to how much uh, you can buy because they don't want you to buy ten pounds of it and then you create crystal meth from it. Like one. Well, there man. goes my side business. What 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 is? Uh, how did they manage to miss this for so long about phenylephrine? Well, they they've sort of known. There's been increasing evidence, but it's partly inertia. On the part of the regulators, you know, you know, and and there's so much of this stuff that's been purchased. I think they didn't want to ir- irritate consumers in part. Well, they're going to irritate me, Doc, because I mean, I'm just telling you, it's a practical problem for me, and I don't know how many other people that if you know if you're out to whatever it is you're doing, whether you're working or not. I remember used to drive me nuts. I'd go deer hunting or elk hunting, and and I'd be out there, and I knew I'd stuff a couple of them in my pocket and figure if I get congested, I'll take one of these. The last thing I need to be is out there trying to track down an elk or or a buck. And uh, and and then you know sniffing and snorting and 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 blowing my nose not ex- not exactly the way to sneak up on the wild game. That's true. I'll, I'll, I want to mention the other uh, possible mechanism that wouldn't apply to the situation you described, but it would apply uh, to people who have a common cold or or the flu, and take it a couple times a day for a few days and then get better. And that's called the uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. Uh, that, 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 those Latin words mean after this, therefore, because of this. In other words, you do something and, and you get a result and you assume that it's because of, uh, of the drug. Uh, so th- that happens to, uh, you know, normally with a common cold, you get better in a few days and you assume that the things that you did cause the, uh, the amelioration of the cold, which may not be the case. Yeah, because I, 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 I can't split my brain in half and do a double-blind study where one half of my brain gets the drug and the other half doesn't. It, doesn't, right. it, it hasn't worked it's, out for me. Exactly. So, uh, you know, these are interesting phenomena, and, and doctors who prescribe drugs uh, have to take 
that into consideration, and so do regulators. So now you got to go in and stand in line at the pharmacy and walk up and ask for the pseudoephedrine because the phenylephrine is is off limits now because it might cause a bad effect, even though I haven't noticed any bad effects. And believe me, I, I pay attention to what it says on the package. And, and Doc, one of the things I, I do is I get up in the morning, the congestion is mild, just figure, okay, if I, if I drink some uh, hot coffee and, you know, just kind of go on with my morning, I'll see if it gets better. If it doesn't, I pop a Dayquil. If it does, I, uh, I don't. Well, you know, here's what happens with a control uh, patient who doesn't get the Dayquil. Does the coffee eventually work after, say, an hour? We don't know. We don't know that because you don't do that experiment. No, and I'm I'm not going to. I've got I've got a busy enough day for the twelve hours a day I work that I don't need to do any experiments, and I certainly don't have an unin, uninterested third party to watch the results and record them. Doctor Miller, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lars. That is that is Dr. Henry Miller from the American Council on Science and Health. Coming up in a moment, I want to get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And I want to tell you about Los Angeles, which managed to waste 67 million taxpayer dollars to find housing for 255 individuals who are supposed to be homeless. You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Daisy was abandoned by her. Another strong take from President Biden on AI and the weather. Helping web tech, the web, the web telescope. My God, what is this? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. What would you call a $67 million homeless program that only managed to find housing for less than 300 people in one American city? Well, that's exactly what happened in Los Angeles. The mayor, Karen Bass, had said, we're going to have the inside safe program to house the city's homeless. And they gave her 67 million bucks, and she managed to house 255 people out of Los Angeles's 46,000 estimated uh, people who were living on the streets as so-called the unhoused. Now, she told NBC News that she was not satisfied with the numbers, and it wasn't even her money. Can you imagine how the taxpayers feel about spending a massive amount of money and getting a few hundred people into housing? It's absolutely nuts. To your calls, uh, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Our Twitter poll today, should Congress let the FBI keep its power to spy on Americans, many of them people who are not even suspected of breaking the law, let alone suspected of breaking the law with probable cause? I would say no to the idea. I think Congress uh, should take that power away from the FBI by allowing it to simply evaporate when we reach the year's end. And that's what's going to happen. Let's go to Ryan in Idaho listening on KIDO, the home of Kevin Miller. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars. Uh, kind of interesting being on, on the radio for the first time. I haven't done this sort of thing before. Well, well thanks I'm for being a first-time caller. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm a 26-year-old man. I'm a law student in, here in Idaho. Um, 
And I just want to respond to the previous caller who's talking about the draft and I think give my perspective on why I think the draft would be inappropriate and why I think highly detrimental to the well-being of young American men. And that's because our country, I think, in its foreign policy has no moral objective. And our moral objectives that seem to exist, in my mind, conflict with my values as an American and as a Catholic. So, for instance, our army prioritizes spending money on abortion. And also, our foreign policy spends a lot of time worrying about whether children get to cut their genitalia off or not. And so those kind of things would make me very reluctant to participate in a draft where I drafted. I don't know. I can't say what I do. But well, I mean, it's not going to be. I mean, if assuming we had a draft, it wouldn't. Even, and I'm not in favor of a draft either for reasons slightly different than yours. But you wouldn't have any choice. You'd be told you will serve up, so, show up for military service or, or you'll face criminal consequences, uh, as some did uh, when they dodged the draft in World War One and World War Two, and in Vietnam, famously in Vietnam. But tell me this, Ryan, is, aren't our country's moral values at this point and the things you named, aren't they more a product of Joe Biden and the Democrats and not so much a product of our government or our country in itself? Well, I do think they are, they're certainly related to Joe Biden and the Democrats. There's no doubt about that. But I also see that that's just the direction of our foreign policy. And I saw there were ambassadors under the Trump administration who were flying a second flag above our embassies. And that the gay kind of flags, that kind of thing, that shouldn't have been happening yep, either. Exactly. As well as just the general anti, frankly, anti-white man uh, position of academics and people in power. It's why would anyone, any rational man, want to fight for that kind of thing? He should fight against it. I would agree with you, although I don't know that you'd fight against it by just resisting the draft. What we need to do is get uh, a Republican president in, in this case, Donald Trump, in 25. And we need to have a Republican House and Senate. And we need to have some Republicans who have some backbone, which I'd be the first to admit that during Donald Trump's first two years in office with Republican majorities in the House and the Senate, we didn't get a tenth of what we should have got done done during those times. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, um, you know, Paul Ryan, the sellout rhino, decided to simply, uh, you know, basically hand it over to the other side and just spend more money, which is exactly what they did. Yeah, no, it's a darn it's a darn shame. And I'm pretty dismayed by the lack of backbone that many people in politics have. I have my fingers crossed with Miss, with Speaker Mike Johnson, but we'll see. Well, and, and I'll tell you what, Ryan, I mean, if they've done. You know, if they're going to have this vote next week, and they say they will, to open a formal uh, impeachment inquiry, okay, I I think they've wasted too much time getting to this point. But if they're going to get there, I I do like, I mean, you say you're studying the law. I've spent an awful lot of my career around cops and judges and lawyers and prosecutors and people like that. And one of the things I've absorbed from that is you don't want to, if you're going to take down Biden, you better have all of your ducks in a row. You ought to have your case completely together. Well, at this point, I think they've got enough to be able to make the case. Now, does that mean we're going to talk the Democrats into voting to convict Joe Biden in the Senate? Not likely. They'll they'll vote party line. But it'll be apparent to Americans what they're doing. You know, when you say we're going to ignore all common sense and everything in front of us and just say, no, we're going to let Joe Biden and his crime family get away with what they got away with, which I think will resonate with Americans. They'll look at that and say, I don't want to be part of that. 
I mean, you've got Democrats right now in, in office who are looking at Joe Biden trying to sell the country on the idea that Bidenomics is doing anybody any favors. And they're saying, I'm not even going to go out and do that. It may, the president may be the head of my political party, say Democrats, but I'm not going anywhere near that because it's so fraudulent that the American people will see through it. And they don't even want to be connected to the policies or the politicking of their, of their top Democrat, Joe Biden. So they're in trouble right now. And, and, and in fact, watch what's going to happen in the next few months because the Democrats have realized right now that Donald Trump is inevitable. His nomination as the Republican Party candidate is inevitable. And his election is fairly cert- as certain as anything can be about a year out from the election. Um, he's beating a, an incumbent president in the in the polls when you average them by almost three percentage points. And I think that's that's only going to grow because over the next 11 months, the Democrats and Biden will become even more desperate to try to do something to change his circumstances. And every time he shows up in public, every time he answers a question, it gets worse. So what are they going to do? I mean, they've tried to go to court and keep Trump off the ballot. I mean, imagine that we live in a country where, you know, teachers, since I was a little kid, would brag, we have a peaceful transition of power. We have fair elections. Everybody gets to vote, all this other stuff. And then and then you find out, no, they'll cheat if they possibly can. The idea that they would say we are so desperate not to have Donald Trump end up back in the White House where a majority of Americans want him, that we will try to keep him off the ballot so Americans won't even have that choice available to them. How did we get to that point where a party would do that? I don't I don't have a good answer for that. I do think it's in part I it's in part because we don't believe in our values anymore. I, and it's hard for me to argue what are Amer- American values when I look at what my peers believe or what they don't well, believe. And, and I got to tell you, something, you're going into a very fraught profession. Uh, would you mind oh, saying, yeah. do, you, do you know what kind of lawyer you're going to be? Well, God willing, I, wanna, I would like to practice in prosecution for a few years and then beyond Good. that, maybe litigate in constitutional law. Okay, because that's the way to go, because, Ryan, one of the things I always point out to people, I've known lots and lots of defense attorneys, and I always tell them, I said, you are in a morally, you know, absolutely morally compromised profession, because if somebody comes to you and says, I murdered somebody, and I want you to represent that guy, you have to work your tail off to get somebody you know. Now, that doesn't happen all that often, but but if it does, say you know to a fair certainty that your client is guilty. And yet it's your job to use every single angle you can to make sure that person ends up back on the streets and the public back at risk. I can't imagine doing that kind of job. But, Ryan, thanks for the phone call. We'll be back in a moment. We've got to talk about a number of other things, and I'll get to more of your phone calls in just a second. You're listening to The Lawrence Larson Show. American elections promise some provocative politics, but be forewarned. The green agenda may lead to some extreme rhetoric. I get puffer! So prepare yourself by listening to The Lars Larson Show. 
Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you with me. And despite 10 Republican-led states embracing universal school choice, the southern parts of the United States lag behind. Is there a connection between the teachers' unions and southern lawmakers hindering school choice initiatives? I thought we'd talk about that with John Tillman, who's CEO of the American Culture Project. John, welcome to the program. And in in the interest of full disclosure, I'll tell you that while I went to public schools, government-run public schools, I'm completely in favor of school choice, and I think it would be good for everybody, for the taxpayers, for the parents, for the students, and even for the teachers, because everything would improve if we had true school choice. Welcome back. Well, uh, Lars, great to be with you. And, uh, yeah, we have a problem in these uh, states I wrote about in the Wall Street Journal earlier uh, in the week, the or last week, rather. The uh, the teachers' unions have been giving money to Republicans, of all people, in Texas, Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama in order to block revolutionary school choice that could uh, really improve the lives of all children, but especially uh, minority children and poor children, uh, particularly in the larger cities. Well, I think when somebody offers you money, you ought to take it. But then you say, I'm going to take your money, but I'm not going to go along with your position. Is there something else that explains why Southern Republicans would say, sure, give me the money. I'll vote against school choice. I mean, why would they go that direction? I think one of the one of the truisms of politics that I always talk about is that there's two kinds of politicians. There's the politician who becomes a politician because he has an agenda, a policy agenda he cares deeply about or she cares deeply about and wants to advance. Then there's a lot of politicians who adopt a policy agenda to fuel their political ambitions, and they're fairly untethered. Uh, from an ideological or principled point of view. And so what happens to these types of Republicans in these states and around the country, uh, the people that are at their door knocking the most, the people that are most often in the hallways of the state capitol are the unions, and particularly the teachers' unions, and they become friendly. They get to know them. They know them in their community because the teachers, of course, are members of the union, and they have a very uh, seductive way of becoming ingratiated with these state reps, and then they begin to give them money. And then they start to have an open mind in listening to the fall claims of the teachers union. So one of their claims, for example, is that school choice will harm rural and suburban schools, which of course is not true. Rural and suburban schools on average start to get more money uh, in the public system, uh, and they also start to see more choices develop. What we have to be loyal to, Lars, is children, not public education systems, not the educational industrial complex, not the teachers union. It's the kids, and choice for kids is what's best, no different than with their doctor or the kind of food they eat. Well, I agree with you, John. And one of the things I've always (laughs) challenged, I mean, on the rare occasions when I get a chance to talk to somebody who's against school choice, because the unions, for the most part, don't talk to me. uh, But but I'll ask them. I said, can you name me any part of life anywhere on the planet where competition does not produce two primary things? It has a lot of other uh, uh, good effects as well. But the two primary things are excellence and low cost. And and there are very few examples where you can find where competition does not produce excellence and low cost. Why wouldn't we want that applied to education? And I think that, that it stymies most of them because if you say, does excellence produce a great NBA full of players who are the most capable? Yeah. Uh, okay. What if you took away uh, competition and you said, let's have NBA players kept on teams based on their seniority so the older you get the less likely you are to get cut and the young bright player who comes in he's only been there a year or two uh if they have to let anybody go they have to let the kid go and you say would that make a better nba and they say well of course not 
And I said, why would it make a better school system? But that's exactly the way the school system works under unions. Last hired, first fired. The senior folks stick around, whether they're doing a good job or not. If it actually causes the public schools, the government schools, pain, good. Because pain in every other part of life, if you walk into a restaurant and all your friends say, it's the worst restaurant in town, don't go there, and the restaurant starts to lose business, if they don't change their game, then they go out of business, and they should. And I, I would apply the same logic to schools. If you don't produce a good product, uh, educated kids, then then you should go out of business. But none of them really face that until recently. That's exactly right. And the thing that's particularly uh, uh, infuriating about this is who are who is most harmed by this? So let's talk about a type of choice. There's a type of choice in affluent communities are among affluent people. They can send their kids to the public school or they can send their kids to the private school. In Illinois, the, uh, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, who's called school choice evil and racist, sends her own child, her home high school student child, to a private school. And when confronted on this, her answer was, well, I need to have the best options for my child that the public school can't provide. And we all went, bingo, now you understand why you should be an advocate. But what happens is she makes a lot of money, so she can afford it. What about those same families of black and brown kids in the city of Chicago and white kids who are poor and can't afford to send their kid? They are saddled with a failing school. When you look at the country, it's places like Chicago, Detroit, Baltimore, Oakland, Los Angeles, Dallas. These are the places, large urban schools, often with significant minority populations, if not majority minority. Those are the children that are being harmed by a lack of choice because those with money can opt out because they're willing to pay twice. That's why universal school choice is so powerful and why it's such a threat to the teachers union. And these 10 states that are leading are really going to set the bar higher. And eventually, I think these four states I wrote about in the Wall Street Journal, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, and Georgia will come along. Well, I'm talking to John Tillman, who's CEO of the American Culture Project, and you can read read the piece he put for the Wall Street Journal. But there was a number I heard just today that really was stunning. So if you go back to 2019, four years ago, uh, actually closer to three years ago, um, that that 1% of American parents had school choice available to them, not because they're rich, but because it was offered in their area. Today, it's closer right. to 36%. So we've seen a 36% explosion of school choice in three or four years. I mean, that, that says... This is where Americans and the and the parents and the kids want to go, isn't it? Absolutely, and all the polling shows that. School choice is overwhelmingly popular with Republicans, with Democrats, with independents. It's popular with African-American voters and Hispanic voters. The only people that school choice is not popular with are the teachers' unions and the educational bureaucracy that runs government-run schools. And going back to your earlier point, remember, the government is a monopoly provider of services. The only way that you can, and the union, of course, the teachers' union is a monopoly provider of the labor for the educational (laughs) services in a government school. The problem with that is there's no accountability. When you go to up against the bureaucracy or up against that teacher, they, we look at the Loudoun County fights that went on during the Governor Youngkin, uh, uh, governor's race in 2021. They shut you down. They do not want to hear from you. As uh, uh, the, uh, um, Terry McAuliffe, the candidate for governor that year, oh said, we don't really want to hear, we don't really want to hear from the parents. <laughs> but, you know, in a private school, 
when you go in, you're a customer with a checkbook, and you're writing checks to that uh, school. The beauty of Universal School Choice, it gives that checkbook to a poor mother who has a, a, a promising child who could do better if they got in a better school. One of Absolutely the things we right. Was, John, I'm up against the break. That's John Tillman from the American Culture Project. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in a moment. I want to tell you something. I'm somewhat heartened to find that there's been a real explosion. If you take a look at the numbers, there's been a dramatic increase in the number of kids and families who have access to school choice. And, of course, a lot of this was heightened. I mean, there's been a need for school choice for a long, long time as the government-run K-12 through schools have been failing kids on a regular basis. But then with the pandemic, the school shutdowns, the unions who didn't want their teachers to go back to work and serve the kids, the kids who fell behind, and the schools that said, we got a lot of extra money, but we're not going to help your kids catch up. There's, there should be even more demand for school choice, and it turns out the, the numbers have been rising dramatically. And nobody knows those numbers better than our friend Lee Fenna, who's director of the Center for Education at Washington Policy. Lee, welcome back. Well, thank you, Lars. It is super exciting to see what has happened in the last two years since the COVID school shutdowns. I mean, before COVID, only about 500,000 students in the country took advantage of publicly funded uh, programs to allow their families to go to private school. Okay. There was about, that's less than 1% of the total. Since COVID, so many states have expanded their school, private school choice programs that now fully 36% of the nation's students are eligible to tap into public dollars to go to private school. It is amazing what's happened and well i just i can't go ahead yeah it's great news i mean i know that not all of those 20 million have done it but the fact that the parents know it's available and more importantly the fact that the k-12 schools know if we don't perform for these kids their parents can take them elsewhere it would seem we've almost reached critical mass where you get enough people doing it in various states and parents in other states where it's not school choice is not offered saying why don't we have access to that I almost think we're in a we're in a, a key position or a great spot uh, for for parents to start saying we want this option for us as well. Absolutely, absolutely. These school choice programs provide between four to eight thousand dollars per student in an education savings account for use on private school tuition or homeschooling or uh, buying uh, curriculum materials or anything or or behavioral therapies or anything that is uh, that the family decides is the best uh, tool to educate their child. It's, it's sort of a, 
grassroots explosion and and creativity and innovation in education that that is now going to become possible because of this. Because you can imagine all these small micro schools that cropped up during COVID to educate their children when the schools, public schools wouldn't, the families learned that they can educate their own children. There's been an explosion in homeschooling, as you know, and now a lot of these homeschooling families will be able to tap into some of these programs to get, uh, you know, public help to educate their children, which of course they should. Uh, But, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing because of course word of mouth travels fast and on Twitter today, I saw there was a man who was saying, I have three school choice programs to choose among. I'm, I'm in one of those states. <laughs> well, and, and think about this, Leave, because I think a lot of parents, I mean, my, my granddaughter Payson is, is homeschooled, and very successfully she's able to move along at her own speed, so she's well ahead in, in, in reading, she's well ahead in math. Um, and, mm-hmm. and when parents say, you mean it was this easy? I mean, I understand there are challenges, and some parents could have a real challenge. But with all the online options and the curriculum packages that are already put together, we can go out and buy books and materials, and you say, so I can educate my, my child that easily and let my child yeah. move along at their own pace instead of the pace of the whole classroom. They're seeing it's superior and it's less expensive. It's going to be really tough for the teachers' unions to keep insisting, no, we got to be spending what is it now almost twenty thousand dollars a year in the state in oh. the state of Washington where I live twenty thousand yeah. bucks a year and you say hold on what are we buying for twenty thousand bucks and you say oh exactly. probably four or five thousand dollars worth of education. It's much less expensive to do it go about educating the public this way no doubt about it because no longer will you have to fund these bureau- huge bureaucracies. That, that take, you know, 40 cents of every dollar away from the classroom. You know, no longer will you be funding unions that close down schools to strikes like just happened in Portland. You know, so many good things would happen if uh, this continues. And I think it will because the, the idea of fund the child, not the system, is such a powerful idea. Everybody understands that. And uh, it's, it's a beginning. I think we're reaching critical mass and the fact that 36%, 20 million students in the country now have access to, pu- to public aid to send their child to private school. It is a revolution. It is well, exciting. And the other piece to this, leave is that not only do you force the public schools to either match that you know, performance of the private schools and homeschooling uh, or they're going to lose their kids. Uh, because I, I don't see any problem with the public schools losing students if if they're saying, well, we're going to produce a mediocre product for 20 grand. And the homeschoolers or the, you know, the, the private schools say we can produce a better product for half of that much or a third of that much. At that point, the public schools have to compete. But the private schools and the homeschoolers have to compete as well, because one program might say, well, our, our private school is seven or eight thousand bucks. You say, well, I can get the same education from my child down the street from you for six thousand bucks. All of that competition usually produces excellence and lower prices. And we can have a real revolution in the way that America does public education. Absolutely. It couldn't come at a better time because did you see the international PISA results from from the from uh, the international tests that test children across the world uh, in math and reading? They came out today. Our math scores for the United States, they were never very good. Now they've plummeted to the lowest level they've ever been. So the time for competition and education is right now. We really need school choice. We even even Biden's. uh, 
education secretary says that we have a math crisis, well, they're not going to fix it in the public education institutions, okay? That's for sure. That we know from decades of trying to fix the public schools from the top on down. They are captured by the union. There's nothing that can be done, really, to fix that system. The only thing that will fix it is competition from school choice. Well, and I'm hoping, Leave. I know Joe Biden is not going to bring up public education because that would force him to confront the unions that are a big part of the problem. But if when Donald Trump becomes the nominee, I know there are a lot of other issues that are likely to take front and center, uh, budget concerns, energy, uh, foreign affairs, wars, things like that. But on the other hand, you could expect Donald Trump to say, look, we've got to change the way we educate our kids. And that'll be a challenge for Joe Biden. What's he going to say? Well, we're doing a great job now. Really? You're doing a great job, and you've lost hundred millions of kids who've already fled the public schools and lots of stu- states that have already said, we're going to make public school choice or school choice a choice for 36% of all the kids in America instead of 1% that was the number just four years ago. I think this, this could be a big presidential election year issue as well, and Joe Biden can't afford to touch that third rail of all the union politics tied up in teaching. That's Lee Fennett, director of the Center for Education at Washington Policy. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Team Kissin on Hamas. For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters. At least they know what a woman is. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've been kind of, uh, in some ways, amused by what uh, President Joe Biden has been doing, running around the country, bragging about how well Bidenomics is going, and then trying to gaslight Americans, both Joe and his mouthpiece, Karine Jean-Pierre, saying why prices are coming down. No, the rate of inflation is not inflating as fast as it was a year ago. But that doesn't mean prices are going down. It just means they're going up more slowly. So Joe Biden has apparently pinned his re-election hopes at this point on going around and selling Americans on the idea that Bidenomics has been doing them a bunch of favors. I thought we'd talk about that with Romina Bacha, who's director of budget and entitlements at the Cato Institute. Romina, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Are the Democrats, I'm always glad to have you on the show because I'm not an economist and I don't know anything. I can barely balance my checkbook. But is there, do the Democrats realize at this point that trying to sell Bidenomics to the American public is not a winning proposition? Yes, they have been catching on. In fact, a lot of the Democrats running for re-election have been staying away from that messaging. The White House is still using it, but other Democrats have... uh, have started to move away from it because they get the sense that the American people think that uh, Bidenomics is is a tone-deaf campaign strategy. People are hurting. What used to cost $100 for a family uh, to feed themselves now costs roughly $125. And In so just three years. people's incomes, yeah, people's incomes haven't risen 
at the rate that prices have gone and people are feeling the pain there taking on more credit card debt just to make ends meet, which, of course, will not end well. And so um, it is not a winning strategy. It is a winning strategy if you're trying to appeal to people that are benefiting from all the subsidies that have been going to the you know, clean energy industry and renewables and um, batteries for elect- electric vehicles and all of that. Those people, it might resonate with them, but they're getting handouts from the government. It's not a winning economic strategy. It's just plain old vote buying. Well, and in fact, even if you're, say you're not one of the big uh, entities that's getting these subsidies, but say you're one of the smaller ones. Uh, we've talked recently about the $7.5 billion that was put out for electric car chargers, and the states have barely begun to start taking contract, you know, or setting up contracts to actually build them two years later. If you're one of those small companies that's getting some money, I guess you could see it as a positive unless you say, yeah, that's great. I got a government contract to build some electric car chargers that we apparently won't need because nobody wants mm-hmm. to buy the or fewer people want to buy the electric cars. But in the meantime, my paycheck has stayed about the same, probably hasn't grown a whole lot. Uh, and, and when I go to the store and my family goes to the store to buy groceries, pay rent, do all the other things you have to do, those prices are all up. So, I mean, in, yeah, even in know- that case, for the people directly benefit, it's kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, the big thing that you haven't even mentioned yet is labor costs are going (laughs) up. Fewer people are working and uh, you have to pay more to just get people in the door to put all these, you know, um, um, electric charging stations in place. That requires a lot of manpower and that manpower is expensive. You cannot outsource that to chat GPT or some AI platform. You need real human labor to do that. And that's getting really, really expensive because people realize that they need to make money in order to, uh, you know, make it pay for themselves and in order to be able to support themselves. And otherwise, they're not they're not coming out. And so this is always the tricky part with inflation. The government, because they print the money, they get to spend it first while prices are still low. And then as that money moves through the economy, prices start going up because people realize, oh, wow, there's more money out there. But actually, there aren't more goods and services with which to buy, you know, what with which to, you know, what what to spend that money on. So you just have more money chasing the same goods and services. And that's that's inflation for you. And that's what we're what we're still working through. And the flip side, of course, is that businesses that are actually trying to expand are having a tough time doing it because, Interest rates are so high. Like, try to get a loan these days, even just to buy a used car. Used car prices are up 35%, even worse than overall inflation. So all of that is uh, cutting into American families' bottom lines and making them feel uh, very unenthusiastic about uh, President Biden's economic agenda. Well, Romina, I'm going to use chicken and coffee as two measures because I'm an amateur economist. So my wife and I will occasionally stop at a a place to buy a cup of coffee. And we stop usually at the same place every day. And we've gotten to know the young men and women who work there. And we wondered, uh, why haven't we seen so-and-so in a while? Oh, all of our hours have been cut back. And I thought, oh, there's a discretionary purchase that when people start to run short of money, they say, I don't need that $5 cup of coffee, you know, or $4 mocha or whatever. The other one was, Ramina, in in all the time I've ever driven past a Chick-fil-A, I have never seen a Chick-fil-A at any hour of the day or night without a giant line of cars waiting to buy their yeah. products. And the other night, 
My wife and I were doing some Christmas shopping. We drove past a Chick-fil-A, and Tina said, look at that. I said, what? She said, there's no line. There's like one car there. And I thought, well, there's another oh. discretionary purchase. And again, it's anecdotal, but, but it tells me something when they're cutting back the hours of the people who work in those places, and those are some of the people who have to deal with the increasing grocery prices, and other places that mm-hmm. have no line of customers waiting out the door as they always do, that tells me that, that people are starting to feel the pinch. Yes, they are. And so we'll see how much longer President Biden keeps up his uh, Bidenomics talk because it's not resonating. It's not working. We really, frankly, we need to turn things around. This whole strategy of the government just printing money and spending it on preferred industries and hoping that that will drive up growth. It is not working. It hasn't been working. We need to change it. Our deficit this year is $2 trillion. That is unheard of during relative peace times and when we're not in a major financial crisis, which we're not at the moment, thank goodness. Although with the current policies, I wouldn't be too surprised if we, if we were staring down a recession down the road. Let's hope we don't get there because then people would be hurting um, even even worse. But we need to reduce spending in Biden's out there saying, I need another $160 billion, uh, and asking Congress to label it as emergency spending so they can bust through the spending limits that they agreed to back in May. If you recall, when they raised the debt limit, they yeah. said, OK, we'll raise the debt limit, but we'll cut spending. We'll put in place these spending limits. And now uh, Biden's pushing them to just completely blow through those spending limits to give more money to Ukraine, to give money to Israel, but bundle it all together. Uh, And I think it's been good that Republicans have been saying we want to vote on those bills separately. We want to decide how much money do we think Israel needs? Do we do we want to give any more money to Ukraine? What strings need to be attached in those instances? And what are all these other things that the president wants to fund that he calls emergencies that are clearly not emergencies? Like, please, the salaries of FBI agents, that should be part of the regular budget. You know, you have to pay government employees. We get that. But that's not a sudden, urgent emergency. No, it's more of a political emergency. One other thing that I've used as a benchmark, and again, in my amateur economist stuff, Romina, is the amount we pay per month on debt service on the national debt. Yeah. It's around, I think, $69 billion, which is still short yeah. of $3 billion a day. It's more than $2 billion a day. How soon do we hit the point where we're going to be spending $3 billion a day just to pay the interest on the debt? Yeah, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but interest is the fastest growing budget category. And of course, a lot of that will depend on the the interest rate that the Treasury will have to pay as they are rolling over one third, about eight trillion of the entire national debt over, over the next year. Like that's how much of the debt is, is coming due and will need to be rolled over and will, will, will need to be rolled over at these much higher rates. So Absolutely right. That's Romina Bacha, who's Director of Budget and Entitlements at the Cato Institute. Romina, thank you very much. We'll be back in a moment. Thanks for joining me for Honestly Provocative Talk Radio. If you want to sound off, you're always welcome here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And of course, naysayers always go to the head of the line when you call the Lars Larson Show. Check out our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. And of course, of course, you can check us out on Instagram and Alexa as well. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.
Ronald Reagan knew better. Do you? All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you on board. And if you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. When I consider the idea that our nation's capital is one of the most dangerous cities in the United States of America, you've got to wonder what is wrong with this picture in a nation that should be a nation of law and order, a nation of laws, not a nation of men that when our nation's capital becomes one of the most dangerous places in America, there is something very seriously wrong. And I thought we'd talk about that with Dr. Curry Myers, who is both a criminologist with a background as a former sheriff and a state trooper as well. Dr. Myers, welcome back. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Lars. Let's, let's just sketch this out for my audience. First of all, how much has crime gone up in the District of Columbia? It's incredible. It's insane. It's a very, very dangerous city, not only with respect to violent crime, but property crime has escalated significantly. Uh, The recent data from the Metropolitan Police Department um, indicates that it's been a 32% increase in homicides over last year. Last year was already a record year. Um, And the report shows the total number of crimes in the city has increased by 27% over that same period. Uh, And in particular, if you look at motor vehicle theft, it's up 92%. You've probably seen the headlines and all your listeners have seen the headlines of police officers. There was an FBI agent carjacked not too long ago. We've had congressmen carjacked. We've had all kinds of people carjacking. They're up a staggering um, to 900 carjackings in 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 D.C. this year. Uh, to give you some idea, there were 244 last year, uh, which shows you just the increase this year. And so more than tripled in, in one year, and three-quarters of them involved guns? Yes. And of those 900, only 244 carjacking cases have been closed, and only 159 carjacking arrests have been made. So there are a lot of folks that are out that haven't, paid their debt and been arrested for these significant crimes. The reason I pointed out the involvement of guns, Dr. Myers, I'm a gun owner. I believe in the Second Amendment, but not guns in the hands of criminals. If there's a gun involved in a carjacking, I assume that if the driver in any way resists, that, that there's a very high potential for the driver either getting hurt or killed when the when the uh, the criminal chooses to use a gun in the commission of that crime. Oh, it's definitely the case. And most people, carjackings are, are most common, especially in the urban sectors, when somebody does come in with a gun. And there's often, we, what we've seen is a, is a change, too, in the type of carjackings. It used to be where carjackings might be by a singular person. We're seeing more mob activity and mob behavior and criminality than we've seen in, in a long time in decades. So it may be that you actually get um, stopped or uh, surrounded by a couple of cars and multiple people will come out and uh, carjacking. And so it's not just carjacking, but robberies are up 70, 70 percent um, in, in Washington, D.C. And, you know, again, the data, as you know, I'm a big believer in evidence-based policing and 
Yep. Quite frankly, we're not following the evidence. We're not we're not taking care of business. We know the top five sectors of the city that have the most crime. Um, it's in the U Street corridor, the Brentwood, Den, uh, Deanwood, Shaw, and Georgetown are generally between 45 and 108 percent higher than the other areas. And I agree with you. You know, I'm I'm a pro Second Amendment person. Um, and and when you try to when you try to impose and have new regulations on gun policies, they don't work. Um, by nature, criminals don't follow the law. Um, we have enough laws on the books for people who commit grum, guns with crime, uh, commit a crime with a gun, but we don't enforce the law, and we have prosecutors that are not enforcing the law. We've got enough laws on the books, Lars. We have enough. The yep. problem is we're not enforcing it and we're not holding people accountable. The criminal justice system is supposed to be a carrot-and-stick philosophy weighed similarly, and unfortunately it is 90% carrot and 10% stick nowadays. I'm talking to Dr. Curry Myers, who's a criminologist, former sheriff, and state trooper. The other piece of that, a couple of other pieces I wanted to ask you about, one is while it is technically possible to get a concealed carry permit to be able to carry a gun in the district, on paper it's possible, but I've talked to at least one young lady who actually went through the process, and I think it was close to two years and a lot of money to be able to get a gun. So the people who are likely to become the victim of a carjacking, to a great de- to a great uh, degree, the criminals know the gun owner or the uh, car owner is not likely to be armed. Well, that's true. In in most of the of the urban sectors um, across the United States, they're usually in states that have some of the worst gun laws and, and some of the highest crimes. So, um, actually, there was a great book uh, written by Doctor Lott a few years ago called uh, "More Guns, Less Crime." Um, yep. I believe that data holds true. Um, and and if you look at um, the history of of gun use. Uh, if we just enforce the laws that were specific currently to gun laws like a felon in possession, or if you committed a crime in possession of a gun, a firearm, uh, then that's when they lay the hammer down, and they should. Even the federal government, there used to be a, a five-year enhancer um, when you committed a felony in the federal system with a gun. The Department of Justice now doesn't doesn't even go after some of those enhancers like they used to. So this is a prosecutorial issue. This is a defund police uh, issue. Heck, the, the Washington, D.C. just got some money, um, about $250,000, as a matter of fact, that the mayor was uh, able to get. And and she used that money to refurbish the BLM sign huh. manual that's printed on the street um, that, was, that was done during the riots in June of 2020. So here's a quarter of a million dollars that the mayor has decided to um, not invest in policing, but is redoing a, a mural. So, Well, she's, she's spending money on a political message that was painted by a private group, a group that happens to be connected to a lot of criminal activity itself, you know, riots, arson, looting, and murders nationwide, and to, and to put their political sign back on the street. The other piece I wanted to ask you about is this. Of the people arrested for carjacking in Washington, D.C., where the numbers have gone up so dramatically, Two-thirds of them are kids? Yes, high juvenile crime. And it's not just, of course, the carjackings and the violent crime and the robberies that are occurring, but property crime is escalating and vandalism. So 
Uh, I did a, on my sub stack, I did recently on retail crime and the increases in retail crime and specifically in Washington, D.C. We have packs of, of juveniles usually armed that are going into pharmacies such as CVS and going into other um, stores that sell similar goods uh, and food products. And they go in and literally walk out with whatever they want, hands full, handful of stuff. And whatever they don't take, they ransack, ransack the facility. Um, so it, it, uh, they're just leaving the whole you know, store system in chaos. And what you're going to happen is businesses are going to shut down. They're going to say, I can't afford to do business here. Um, or what people's going to do is they're going to start being armed themselves. I don't know if you recently saw where in New York City, the Bodego owners yep. have decided to band together and start um, being armed. And, and you know, and anytime you go into that, and they should, but you go into those kind of escalations, it makes things worse. When- Absolutely. Well, it's going to get some people hurt or killed. That's Dr. Curry Myers. Dr. Myers, thanks very much. Back in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARGE. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Musk sums up America's government. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It seems the legal war over the transgender invasion of public bathrooms and locker rooms is amping up dramatically. I want to give you the details on that because it seems that almost every day we see another reminder My friend Todd Starnes, who does a talk show in Memphis, put up an item today about a young lady uh, who went off to uh, summer camp, went off to one of the school-sponsored summer camps, and was told, you're going to sleep in the same bed as a boy, except the boy identifies as a girl. This transgender nonsense has reached a fever pitch, and it's crazy. Because you're seeing numbers that say that the number of kids claiming to be transgender in some places is up as much as 57%. And I just ask you logically, even if you accept the premise that there are boys and girls born into a body as a boy or a girl who at some point say, you know, I really identify more as female or I really identify more as male, even though I was born with the opposite gender, that you would expect, well, there's going to be a small number of people. And then all of a sudden, when it gets talked about a lot nationally, when teachers are beginning to push that agenda on their kids, oftentimes driven by their own personal sexual identity, if they're gay, if they're lesbian, if they're transgender themselves, and they're pushing this on your kids. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of kids in a class say, oh, we're all transgender. Look, kids like to get attention, and this may be one way they're doing it. And now it seems it's got to the point where people have finally said, we're going to stop this, which is why you're seeing a a lot of challenges, legal challenges in court and at the school district level as well. 
But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. I'm glad to be with you and always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, if you disagree with me, and usually on these transgender issues, I'll get at least one or two people who say, oh, no, you're completely wrong. We should start transitioning kids when they're 12 and give them puberty blockers and you do surgery so we can either chemically or surgically castrate them. Do you realize what a crazy idea that is? And I'll call it crazy. If you've got children who all of a sudden hear about transgender and they say, well, then I'm transgender too. And you realize the life-changing consequences of what is being done to these kids and the literally billions of dollars that major medical institutions are making from doing this so-called gender-affirming care. It's a joke. I mean, it's, it's a dark, dirty joke that has tremendous consequences, negative consequences almost entirely for the kids who are affected. But consider this. Under the Biden administration, the Department of Ed has interpreted federal law. They didn't look at the actual writing in the federal law. They said, we're going to interpret the law. Laws that were written decades ago that allow people who identify as transgender to use restrooms and locker rooms in schools that do not align with their biological sex. So, The practical effect of that, your daughter goes to school, goes to gym class, participates in organized sports, heads to the locker room to take a shower and put on clean clothes or dry clothes at the very least and runs into a boy in the showers. Why is that allowed? Because of the Joe Biden administration interpretation of federal law. Well, several states, according to the Epic Times, have affirmed that ruling, creating legislation that allows people who identify as transgender to use the restroom that aligns with whatever's going on inside their head, their declared gender, as they call it, rather than requiring them to use spaces set aside for people of their biological sex. More than a dozen states have now made moves to prohibit people from using restrooms and locker rooms that do not correspond with their biological sex, no matter how they identify. That's a dozen states. And then you talk about a case that we've actually discussed in this uh, out of Port Towns in Washington, where an 80-year-old woman, Julie Jamin, went into the shower at the YMCA pool, not in a public school, but in a private organization. And she said, there stands a man in a woman's bathing suit looking at, watching, and touching little girls who are taking down their bathing suits. So she objected. Guess what? Julie got kicked out of the YMCA. She was banned for life. She has been going swimming at that pool for 34 years. She's never seen a man in the women's changing area. And yet when she objected to that, all of a sudden they said, you are the problem. You leave, Julie Jamin. And uh, and that's outrageous. So people have heard these stories. They understand that they're well-documented. And now, well, there are a dozen states that have amended their laws to include gender identity as a protected class subject to anti-discrimination. And then there are states that say, no, we're not going to go that direction. We're going to protect the actual little boys and girls. Let's go first to Catherine. Hey, Catherine, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hi, Lars. Yes, what's on your mind? I'm I'm doing quite well today, although I want this stuff to stop because it's putting kids at risk. Would you agree? Yeah, I do agree. Uh, although I am empathetic to the people who do truly identify in that way, I do see this as grooming through the public school systems in many states. For myself and my children, it was part of their fourth grade health curriculum to identify their sexuality. They were, I found worksheets where they were required 
to say what sexuality the and gender the snow person was and forced to identify themselves as um, some type of sexuality. My child wrote bisexual and pansexual without knowing what they were just because all of the other kids wrote that also. Yep. And she, she, he or she wanted to fit in with the crowd. And Catherine, should yeah. any public school teacher be talking about personal sexual matters with a nine-year-old, a fourth grader? No, and I opted out of this program. I said my child could. I think we just lost her call, but we'll see what happens. Let's go to Rob. Hey, Rob, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? I have great respect for you, and I admire you, and I listen to you all the time. But thank you. You're kind. You're kind of borderlining with the, just the just the run of the mill talking heads on all the different conservative stations that I talk to, and I really wished you would stop using the PC terminology. The people out there that you're referring to are gender dysphoric, and I know you use that, but I most do. of the time you're 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 being the nicey, and you're using the transgender. There is no such thing as transgender or transgenderism and i know you know that but i, I know that but rob when we're talking about a subject should i use the the terminology that is the common terminology because if i don't and there are lots of subjects where i could use the technical term for something and nobody would know what i was talking about so how do you split how do you how do you bridge that gap because it's a gap not just on this subject but a lot of subjects it it might be uh, three or four more words you might have to add in there, and I know uh, timing is critical, but the transgender community, also known as the dis- gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria. I mean, although I don't know. although <laughs> now now the DSM-3 or 4, whichever one we're on, the di- Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, they're trying to change the rules. It used to be viewed as a mental illness. I think it is a mental illness. And I think it should be treated as a mental illness. Rob, I appreciate the call. Glad to get your calls to at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. This is the story of a 